0: This is Hizamir of Network Reorient. Today we have with us Dr. Nadia Fadil who will be speaking about Islam, secularism and the state. So, uh, Dr. Nadia, please introduce yourself uh, for our listeners. What are your main interests and what are you working on currently?
1: So, uh, my name is Nadia Fadel, and I work as an associate professor at the University of Leuven, and that's in Belgium, and uh, I've been involved since 2002 in various research projects on Islam in Europe, to put it, uh, you could say, to to summarize it. Uh, Starting with my PhD, um, where I worked on uh, the ways in which second generation, uh, Moroccans mostly, but also Maghribi um, relate to the Islamic tradition, but also in very various ways. So I looked both at those who have a more intense engagement with the tradition and try to construct their lives uh, around and through Islam, as well as those who have demarcated themselves from the tradition. And some of them also have like uh, described themselves as non-believers or as, uh, uh, in very rare cases, uh, non muslim and so uh, so subjectivity is one of the lines I've looked at and I continue to look at it. What does it mean to be Muslim in Europe, you could mm. say? The other line I've looked at is uh, to look at the ways in which public policies relate to the presence of Islam mm. in Europe. Uh, looking in particular at Belgium, but also the Francophone sp- sphere, but also the Flemish part of Belgium and the Netherlands. So I've just finished now uh, a book project with some other colleagues on the politics of de-radicalization and uh, their effects also on the ground because very few people actually know that the Netherlands played a pioneering role in the development of these policies and that the PREVENT program was largely inspired by uh, the Dutch uh, model. So we're trying actually to trace that history and to describe the... Assumptions and the context in which these policies were developed before uh, 2001, and that eventually resulted in you could say the notion that would be coined in 2002 radicalization. Um, And we are also looking at the effects of these policies on the ground in the Netherlands and in Belgium. So to resume, I look at both Islam as a lived condition um, and lived practices of Muslim in Europe, but also Islam as an object of of debate and regulation.
0: Okay, I just want to um, the last point that you mentioned actually ties into one of the questions I wanted to ask you. Um, so, in a few of your works, and just now actually as well, you refer to Islam as a lived and embodied reality, mm-hmm. and like now you just said as a lived practice. Um, mm-hmm. If I can, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. just now, but my memory's bad. Um, so, what do you mean by this? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to say that Islam is a lived and embodied reality? What does mm-hmm. what do we mean by that?
1: So, I came to this understanding. I mean, obviously, one of the most obvious answers would be to say that, what does it mean when me, people say, uh, I'm Muslim, right? And mm. uh, what signification, what practices, what... Uh, meaning do they attach to that declaration when you say of yourself that you're muslim what does it mean uh is it because your parents are muslim um do you practice in a particular way if so what kind of uh, aspects of your life do you consider as attached to, to to your to your islamic subjectivity for many it will be for instance the 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 abadits right mm-hmm. the the, pr- the prayer fasting going to hajj, going to mosque occasionally or more regularly. For some others, it would also mean uh, making sure that you pray on time, not just pray, but pray on time, that you are surrounded by the right friends, that you dress in a particular way, uh, that you buy your house according to specific principles. Mm-hmm. So the, the 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 societal realms that you will attach to this notion, I am a Muslim and I try to live as a Muslim, vary from, from, from person to person, but also from historical moment to historical moment and from community to community. Because mm-hmm. uh, a clear example is, for instance, the non or relative tolerance of alcohol, uh, a question mm-hmm. that I find really interesting uh amongst the moroccan community it's it's something that is very very taboo so so you don't drink uh, i mean it's 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 haram for for Muslims in general but the way in which that prohibition has been uh you could say enforced or adopted or related to differs very strongly from cultural context to cultural context so you see in the moroccan community the taboo on 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 alcohol is is well respected uh except for youngsters who go out at night and mm. who admit that they are sinful, right? (laughs) And so, which also means that drinking alcohol was one of the first things that uh, my interlocutors who didn't consider themselves practicing Muslim would do, right? So drinking alcohol is an act of demarcation from Islam. Mm -hmm. While amongst the Turkish communities... Drinking alcohol is much more, you could say, mundi- I mean, not as widespread, but is much more prevalent to a certain extent, which also has to do mm-hmm. with the specific historicity mm-hmm. of Turkey, the role of Turkish secularism, but also the presence of Arak and and, and autochthonous forms of alcohol in the region. Mm-hmm. So so it also shows that prohibitions and, and you could say authorizations are also culturally variable. And I think it's also... Um, I find it fascinating to understand how Muslim subjectivity becomes constructed according to specific signifiers. Um, another example is photography and, mm. and, and taking pictures. Until mm. the early 20th century, there was a consensus that it was haram. Now everybody's taking selfies. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so how Isn't did that how did that, that change? Happened. How did that evolve? Okay. So, so there is this element of representation that is also shifting and historically changing. Which doesn't mean that it's no longer applicable Mm. and people not respect it. But the way in which they respect it is culturally mediated and is historically mediated. Mm. And that's another example is the element of modesty, for instance. What does it mean to be modest as a Muslim hijab, for instance, as a prescription? Mm. And now in France, you see more and more actually people saying, well, hijab maybe is not the only way to be to be modest. Of course there is a context to that, right? Mm-hmm. The very strong oppressive measures against uh, veiling, but you see also that within the community other notions of modesty are being because they say, promoted also from within the community. So that's what I mean by Islam as a lived reality. Um, it's, it's very complex and, and that complexity I'm, I'm interested in, but a complexity that is not just individual but that is socially mediated, mm-hmm. right? So that's why I'm very very heavily drawing also on Assad's notion of Islam as a a discursive tradition. Um, The other thing is Islam as an embodied uh, tradition, and I actually came to that uh, through my doctoral uh, dissertation study, and it was one of the main, you could say, findings. If you want to use that term, I don't like that term Mm -hmm. because it assumes that it wasn't there before Before, you saw it. Uh, But um, one of the main uh, points that I develop in my thesis is uh, That came from actually working with people who no longer identify us as, as believing or as practicing. Very few would actually say of themselves that they didn't identify as Muslim. So I found that really interesting already that uh, for many, uh, many held an attachment mm. to and wouldn't accept that someone would tell them you're not a Muslim, right? Even mm. though they would not practice, they would drink alcohol, they would also have their questions around. Uh, around around God uh, or would uh, not fast, so in a way you could say display all types of conduct that show mm. that you 're not really practicing but still, there was an important attachment to the to to to, to Islam, which for them also meant an attachment actually to their history and to their parents and to the Islam that was transmitted to them by their parents. So that's I also wrote about it, on how there is this Islam of the parents that is being invoked that is seen as, as as much more open and much more much less focused on practicing, mm. and more importantly, I also saw that for many people who would identify themselves as non-practicing or in some cases also as atheists, non-believing. There remained a certain kind of bodily attachment to the mm. tradition, which speaks through, for instance, the dilemma around pork meat, for instance. Mm. Quite a few would not eat pork meat and would say, No, that's too far, right? Yeah, <laughs> I will drink alcohol. Wow. <laughs> but, uh, and, and this idea of becoming a, a secular subject as, as an embodied practice, so it also entails actually learning to eat. During Ramadan or learning to drink alcohol yeah. and feeling at ease with it, but like uh, uh, pork meat was a red line for many people, and this idea of being touched when you would hear, for instance, recitations from 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 the Quran, or so this affective mode. So that's why I think it's actually important to consider Islam not simply as a discursive tradition, but also really as an embodied tradition, as something that is transmitted unconsciously, that continues to live, even you demarcate yourself discursively from the tradition, but that mm-hmm. is part of, of your habitus to a certain extent, it's constitutive. that is constitutive yeah. of the person you mm-hmm. are with, and what I found is that most of my informers who were non-practicing were very respectful of that, and they actually cherished that, and they actually oh, wow. uh, wanted to, and, and that speaks also from the loyalty many had to their parents, right, so... Mm-hmm. And and I think that's something that is often overlooked and that adds some complexity on what Muslims as a community mm. consist of. And I think analytically it's even more important to open up that discussion because it would allow us to understand the articulation of Islam in Central Asia, for instance, mm. in Eastern Europe, where... Orthopraxis um, is less central, right? Mm. Where being Muslim is not contradictory with drinking a lot yeah. of alcohol, yeah. yet people are attached to identifying themselves as Muslim, right, and mm. and relating to to that community. So I think there is an open, from an anthropological point of view, I think there is really something to be uh, done about understanding how traditions continue to survive. Mm. And also, which also explain why at some point they might take a different shape, right, and there might be uh, a resurgence of, of a discursive, you could say, investment mm. with with the tradition, even though you have never practiced, right? Yeah. But that there is still a certain kind of effective attachment to it, which is also how I understand that many of my informants who were not practicing didn't accept it when Muslims would tell them, you're not a Muslim, mm-hmm. right? because it excluded them from something that was constitutive of, of who they are.
0: Okay, so it'd be interesting to see what their children are like, mm-hmm. because from what you if I've understood you correctly, what you're saying is that um, they still have that kind of, so they've basically moved away from the praxis of or the orthodox praxis, mm-hmm. if I can put that in quotations, of Islam, and that there's still a link there to family, familiar links, so basically yeah. the parents who are still Muslims, the uncles, the aunties, the cousins, etc., mm-hmm. etc. Cetera, et cetera. It'd be interesting to see what happens with the next generation, mm-hmm. because the next generation won't necessarily have that link. So mm-hmm. it'd be interesting to see, Absolutely. like I'm going in a bit of a digression there. But um, just to get back onto track, you mentioned... But I think
1: we can, can also see it, I mean, from, a, from a, a historical point of view, there are many uh, cultures and societies where you can actually make those... Uh, those comparisons, like, I mean, the first example I have to think of is Algeria, right? Where there has, like, been quite a, a secular policy also on the French uh, role, but also in the post-colonial uh, yeah. role. And where you see, actually, that the younger generations are drawn to to religion yeah, and it yeah. creates tensions with the parents also. Mm. So I think it, it, goes, it can go in any kind of okay. direction. So my point is more to an invitation to consider... Um, and I think Talal al-Assad in his latest work is actually also invoking that embodied uh, aspect of Islam uh, to, to think about the tradition in, in very complex ways, not just in, in the cognitive and more yeah. ostensible uh, ways in which it comes to circulate, but also in the affective and, and bodily way in which it, yeah. it, it continues to subsist.
0: Okay. Um, I just want to quickly move, because we've mentioned the secular quite a few times um, already, so I basically want to put the cards out on the table what is the relationship between secularism and islam if there is actually one that can be worked on or worked out what would be what is the relationship so islam?
1: is your question can uh what is what kind of relationship is productive
0: It's can what is relationship it is it normative or is it an, an, it's an, more an a question is it of, an
1: analytical and descriptive uh,
0: question? I think it's more analytical like what is in your view currently if you were to look at so for example you've looked at policy documents in belgium Mm. in france in Mm. the francophone world from your experience what is the relationship between secularism and islam how do they speak to each other
1: I mean, that's why I was asking is your question analytical or more prescriptive because uh, I think it very much depends on where you're looking at. I mean, Mm -hmm. analytically, if you look at Belgium or you look at France or you look at the Netherlands or you look at the UK, you already get many variations of how Western secularism interacts Mm -hmm. and post-Christian secularism interacts with with, the empirical reality of Islam. You already have different answers to that question, which remains around... The idea that they are mutually incompatible, that's the idea, right, uh, mm-hmm. from which the Islam is being approached and understood. So that's a very old trope, you could say, a, a colonial trope that gets replicated in the post-colonial context and where there is a possible compatibility that can occur if Muslims were to open to enlightenment and were to Europeanize, right? So that's the good mm-hmm. and the bad Muslim kind of game. Um, and so... That's very specific for for Europe to a certain extent, but even in Europe you can see very clear uh, differences but But I think if you look at uh, at the Muslim countries, you have very different articulations mm. right where you have countries that are uh, muslim majoritarian and where this idea um, of the relationship between secularism Um, If we are to understand, I mean, of course, there are two lines, right? The first line is to say that secularism assumes the contradiction between religion and and the state. Hence, a secular state cannot be religious. The model of uh, Turkey, for instance, uh, for a long period of time, Tunisia, um, Iran prior to the revolution. So that's, you could say, one line. The other line is, and that's the argument of Hussein al-Yahrama, but also of Saba Mahmoud, is the argument that even if a state assumes itself to be uh, Islamic, um, the secularism of the state lies not so much in the fact that it rejects or defines itself in contradiction with religion, but that it rather that it comes to deliberate about what the place and position of religion is in the state, right? Mm-hmm. And that becomes inscribed in a state logic that, and in a logic of public order and in a logic of uh, determining uh, these kinds of contours. So in that sense, you could say that uh, all modern states are secular, right? Mm-hmm. Including the ones that are so-called, quote-unquote, Islamic.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, if you were to... Ch- okay, so let's kind of branch out from there, so to speak. If all states are secular, and if we were to accept this premise, how then, how then would, uh, like, so for example, the Critical Muslim Studies Project, as one amongst many trying to work on a decolonial view of the world, given that this is the space within which we have to work, we can't, like, extract ourselves from our context, despite Mm -hmm. what some people may believe, um, how then do we do the work that needs to be done, i.e. how do we decolonize, how do we move outside of what uh, Salman calls Westernese? How does this How does this happen then, if this is the context in which we work? I think there's
1: the one million dollar question, as, yeah. as the Americans <laughs> call saying, it, right? I was asking it, I was like, yeah. <laughs> if okay. I were to, to have an answer, but, well, I mean, I think there are different, again, there are, uh, you come down to the question of what is decolonization, right? Mm. I mean, that's that's then the question, what does it mean to to act from a position of decoloniality? And I think that's a very difficult question because, uh, again, as you said, uh, from which vantage point can you speak and assume that you are not informed by the structures of power that are omnipresent in our Mm. world? But I do think that uh, there is a critical gesture that, that, that um, this, deco- this move of decoloniality uh, allows, and that um, implies always being aware of the historical specificities of the categories you're working with, mm. including the ones that are informing your own subjectivity and to not take them at face value. And I think one of the challenges for the, for the, for the, for, for, for the Muslim, critical Muslim uh, studies uh, project will really be to uh, not equate the Islamic alternative with the decolonial alternative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to really clarify right. the distinction between, between these the two. two. It's yeah. not because it's Islamic, it's decolonial, right? It can be very, like like the, the many Islamic states we have, right? I mean, we have many. Yeah. <laughs> Morocco, Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Um, yeah we have many countries uh, in the in the Muslim world that's that's mm. are defined through islam right and mm. where the the, the 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 monarch or the sovereign is equally the commander of the faithful right yeah. but it doesn't mean that it's decolonial from yeah. that respect Morocco is in I mean, exp- uh, excuse me. The expression is in bed with America, <laughs> with mm. <laughs> European powers for the regulation of migration. Uh, in the fight, in the war on terror, uh, it also has secret prisons. So, mm. so it it the two do not equate equate, and I think that's where. Um, it's, it becomes a, a, a transversal conversation that is not only specific to Islam. In the case of Islam, there are specific articulations, I think. The first thing that speaks to mind is the way in which sectarianism has, has become a mode of regulation within the, yeah. the Ummah, right? The Shia, the Sunni, the Alibi, the other uh, kinds yeah. of divisions, the anti Sunnism, the anti Shiism, right? And how yeah. it's part of a colonial and post colonial mode of, of regulation and power. So, and these are very specific and internal to the Islamic tradition, and which also entails looking at the history of, of this anti Sunnism and anti Shiism within each sub tradition within the Islamic tradition, right? Mm-hmm. And to try to understand how at some point these conversations have come to collude with. Um, uh, state sovereignty, right, mm. and have come to uh, be part of a project of creating a uniform kind of population, right, mm. which also authorizes all kinds of killings and massacres and excommunications, right, mm. which are quite unique to modernity, right, and so it's really understanding how Islam has has captured these mechanisms of modernity, um, and 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 uh, you could say imbricated them in the Conversations that are at the heart of the Islamic tradition. So, so for me, uh, the colonial venture vis-à-vis um, Islam would would really imply looking at how the condition of coloniality, which I link with modernity, for me, modernity yeah. and coloniality is the same. Have you could say come super come to superpose and you could say merge with uh, with uh, the condition of Islam Islamicity, right? And mm-hmm. uh, and and to think about these two. Movements together rather than as separate uh, movements.
0: Okay. All right. Thank you, Dr. Nadia Fadil, for yeah. your time. Yeah. This has been His Hizamir with Network Reorient. Thank you for tuning in. Please have a listen to the other episodes on the network and leave a rating.